Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Tina Sire, PCA Chief Impact Officer. I'm honored to talk today with Elena Nichols. Elena grew up in northern New Mexico and spent her winter snowboarding in Colorado. In the year 2000, she suffered a back injury that left her paralyzed from the waist down. Two years later, she started playing wheelchair basketball, where she quickly excelled, earning a scholarship to play with the University of Arizona, where she earned a degree in education. She went on to earn a master's in kinesiology from the University of Alabama. Elena's Paralympic debut came in 2008, when she won a gold medal in wheelchair basketball at the Beijing Games. Shortly after the game, she moved to Colorado to train in alpine skiing. Again, her rise was swift. She competed in the 2010 Winter Paralympic Games in Vancouver, winning two gold medals, a silver and a bronze. This achievement made her the first woman to win gold medals in the Summer and Winter Games. She now competes in surfing, prompting me to believe there isn't anything she can't do. Elena, thanks so much for joining me today for this PCA one-on-one podcast. Thank you, Tina. Thank you for that warm welcome as well. Well, you know, in preparation for this interview, um, I have two young boys who are eight and six, and they were watching some videos of you. And when they heard about all of your medals, um, one of my boys said, I think she wants to start a collection in Olympic medals. Um, it's, it's pretty incredible, uh, the, the history you've had and just the, the level of uh, dominance worldwide in different sports. But I wanted to start by hearing a little bit about you growing up um, again in, in northern New Mexico and hear about the sports you played as a kid. Yeah, well, thank you. I can't wait to meet your little boys one day and <laughs> show them all my medal collection. Um, Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Farmington, New Mexico, a small town in the northwest corner there. And uh, my life kind of took a pretty dramatic turn when my my father was actually killed by a drunk driver when I was about nine months old. And um, that that was sort of a catalyst for why my grandparents ended up raising me and my two sisters. So uh, not long after we were adopted by my grandparents, they introduced me to T-ball. And, mm-hmm. you know, just like any other uncoordinated five-year-old, I had a really good time out there. But I, I knew even at that young age that I really loved both to play but also compete. And this concept of, you know, setting a goal and achieving it and accomplishing the goal of winning was really exciting for me. And so um, I just remember kind of being motivated uh, to get better at a really young age. And so, you know, started with T-ball. And then once fourth grade came around, I was um, introduced to both uh, basketball and volleyball. And, uh, you know, just developed my skills. And I played, I actually played three sports throughout my elementary, junior high and high school years. Um, loved every minute of it, but as you could imagine for my grandparents, that was a whole lot of driving around, <laughs> getting me to where I, I needed to be. Yeah. So, um, I actually, what, yeah, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, I actually really sort of put my focus on softball after that, um, after junior high, knowing that if I was going to be serious about anything, I needed to focus and, that's when I really kind of started putting my 
uh, all of my energy into fast pitch softball. What position did you play? I started out with short and uh, I played shortstop most of my career. And then towards the end, I played both short and left. So awesome. Awesome. So it was in your vision that you were going to be a a college softball player. Is that right? That was the plan. Yeah. You know, I, I was getting offers and I knew that uh, it would be an incredible privilege and opportunity for me to play college softball. Um, I also, you know, was dreaming big and wanted to play for the Olympic team one day. And, uh, you know, I, I played with a traveling team in high school and we, we played with some of the, the strongest teams in the nation and I knew what it took to get there. So I was well on my way, um, my high school years. So, um, so in addition to the the basketball and the volleyball and the softball, you were doing a bunch of skiing in the summer in Colorado, and um, I think that that's that's where you suffered your accident. And I'm wondering if you could tell our audience a little bit about how and and when that happened. Yeah. So, I uh, as I said, I was playing softball uh, full time, but I had gotten into snowboarding uh, when I was about 14, so a little later in life, but. Uh, found that I really loved the the option of being creative. You know, every other sport I'd done was really more on a linear level and, you know, more traditional. And so snowboarding offered me the opportunity to, to really create and have my own style and um, explore, I guess. And so, um, yeah, I started snowboarding in Southern Colorado, and it was my senior year in high school, um, Early in the season, it was November 19th of 2000, and we had just gotten about three foot of snow the the night before when me and my friends decided to go out backcountry, and, um, you know, it's before the resorts were open, and we just, being 17, were really just kind of chomping at the bit, couldn't wait to get out there, and um, yeah. so we went out backcountry, and we were just building jumps and hiking and jumping. And, um, I actually had thought about and planned on doing my first backflip on a snowboard, uh, that prior to that summer, I had been practicing it on a trampoline with my snowboard on and I could do a flat ground backflip. And, um, it was just something I was really passionate about. And it was kind of the perfect storm of, you know, invincible 17 year old risk taker. And, uh, I had a plan, you know, all came together on November 19th. I was standing at the top of this, uh, hill and sort of impulsively decided to do my first backflip on a snowboard. And, um, before I could even let my friends say a word about it, I was sliding down that hill, um, towards the jump I knew that I didn't want to under rotate that backflip. So I over rotated. I kind of threw my feet as hard as I could over my head and then landed um, board and boots over my head and landed on my back, which um, would have been fine, but there was actually a substantial boulder underneath the snow right where I landed. So uh, yeah, it broke my back in three places and the bones from my vertebrae uh, ended up severing my my spinal cord in several places, and 
um, leaving me paralyzed from the waist down. Um, it just takes my breath away hearing that story, um, and especially someone where physicality and being an athlete and competing was such a big part of your life. Um, can can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the arc of your story and and what did what did you learn about um, what you were going to be able to do moving forward and sort of your psyche from then and going into college? Tell us tell us how you were doing mentally there. Yeah. Um, well, as you can imagine, I. <laughs> I couldn't wrap my head around it at first. I mean, I, I was such an athlete and every day I celebrated using my body. So when the doctor came in and told me that what a spinal cord injury is, which I wasn't familiar with, um, and how your spinal cord of all the organs in your body actually cannot regenerate. Um, he told me that I was paralyzed and that, I would probably never walk again. And, you know, being 17 years old, I just, I couldn't believe it. I really just couldn't. And actually I didn't, I told the doctor that he didn't know me and I was a very hard headed, uh, strong minded individual. And as an athlete all my life, I knew that if I just worked hard enough, I could do anything. I had always, accomplish the goals that I had set out to accomplish. And so I, I really did. I told the doctor he was wrong and I proceeded to function in rehab, not unlike every other challenge that that's been thrown my way. I just worked super hard. And, you know, before long I was doing everything independently. I had to learn how to sit up and dress myself and, move from the bed to my wheelchair and the wheelchair to the ground and back and whatever, you know, skill they want me to accomplish. It was like softball practice. Okay. One, you know, just rinse, wash and repeat. (laughs) And, you know, so I, I really did a great job in rehab thinking that, you know, whatever I was doing was leading me closer to walking again. And I carried that really strong and sort of hard headed attitude through um, going back to high school, which was really hard. Um, you know, it's hard for any 17 year old to sort of process what has happened traumatically to one of their friends. Um, but it's especially hard to, to have a whole group of 17 year olds sort of try to wrap their head around paralysis. And, you know, it was almost like, uh, somebody in our school had died or something, you know, nobody knew what to say or how to act. And, um, some of my friends were totally fine with it. Some of them weren't. The softball team was really supportive of me and, you know, it was just an incredibly hard time. And I did everything I could on a daily basis in rehab, um, thinking that I could regenerate my spinal cord. And then it wasn't until about two years later that, I started losing hope and I, I really kind of succumbed to this idea of being paralyzed and embracing the idea was just difficult. And I think it was a God moment when at my lowest point, I, I was just in the depths of my despair about how my life had played out. And of course, it was at this uh, very emotional moment about you feeling like you were at the lowest point um, and you were finally sort of 
admitting to yourself that that you weren't going to walk, um, and that's where you cut out. So I'm wondering if you could sort of pick up there, um, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, just let me know when you're recording, or are we on? We're live. Yeah, yeah, we, all of this, and they'll just edit out our conversation. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I was at the University of New Mexico, and I really had a hard time just accepting where I was and how, you know, I, I had all these dreams of playing collegiate softball and none of it happened. None of my dreams came true. And it was at my lowest point when I just happened to be rolling through the gym at the university of New Mexico. And, um, you know, I was, I remember it vividly. I was really kind of bummed out. I, every day I would just kind of push around with my head down and not really care about anybody or myself. And I was rolling through the gym and I look up and I see this entire team of people playing wheelchair basketball. And at this point I hadn't really seen another person, my age in a wheelchair. And you know, I felt really isolated every day. And then all of a sudden I see literally 10 people in wheelchairs playing basketball. And I got to tell you, it was, it was really sort of uh, shocking and jaw dropping and amazing all in the same time. I mean, I, I really just sat there like I couldn't believe my eyes, uh, mostly because the sport itself is really sort of violent. It's, it's full mm -hmm. contact. I mean, these wheelchairs are hitting full speed and people are falling over and getting up and shooting three-point shots on a regular-sized court with a regular-sized hoop. And, you know, this is a sport I played for nine years before my injury and had no idea that it was adapted to people with wheelchair people with disabilities. So um, – for me, seeing it was really what sealed the deal. I needed to know that it was not only a legitimate sport, but that it required all of the same hard work and coordination and tactics that every sport that I knew going, you know, growing up had required. And um, yeah, that was a life-changing moment for me. It feels almost like divine intervention, you know, when you really needed it there, you found it. And it, it begs the question, um, you know, for parents or, or guardians um, where they might have a child who goes through a similar experience and is looking for adaptive sports and that sort of opportunity, where can they find it and what resources are out there? Because um, it sure feels like wouldn't it have been great if you were aware of that, you know, years earlier. Thank goodness you found it when you did. But what advice can you give parents about um, how to find those sports for their kids? Yeah, well, thankfully, uh, it's 2017 now. So I broke my back in 2000. And when I first learned about sports was two years later. I can't imagine that that's the case now. So the internet is a huge resource. But more often than not, there's um, organizations in your town, actually, or in the next biggest city for adaptive sports. So um, just kind of looking into that, uh, there are actually collegiate programs for wheelchair basketball, um, for track and field and wheelchair tennis. So kids now are actually, be, they have the opportunity to get collegiate scholarships to play 
um, at their school of their choice. It's, we've come a long way. So it's, it's a great thing for me to be able to say and, um, happy to, uh, send along some extra resources. Maybe we could put in the notes about several different yeah. opportunities with, with regard to grants for equipment. And, um, you know, one of the biggest things for me after I learned about wheelchair basketball was getting the equipment and, um, it's easy to go buy a pair of sneakers or cleats for a child um, that wants to play sports. But when you're a person with a disability, you're going to need anywhere from two to $5,000 to purchase a basketball wheelchair or a tennis wheelchair, track and field right. chair, you know? So, um, yeah. There's some really amazing organizations like the challenged athletes foundation here in Southern California. Um, that provide grants for people with disabilities to buy the equipment that they need. So lots of good That's stuff fantastic. going on. Yeah, yeah. And I'll definitely follow up with you on those resources. Um, you know, in one of your interviews, I, I heard you say you couldn't imagine being an athlete with a disability and your perspective on that has come so far. Um, and I, I'm curious if you could tell our audience today, knowing everything, you know, how do you define um, what what it means to be a great athlete? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I have to admit I was closed-minded about the possibilities of athletes with disabilities. And in my mind, I was sort of an elitist, and I wanted to be the best women's fast-pitch softball player there ever was. And <laughs> now – as an athlete with a disability and as a three-sport Paralympic athlete, it yeah. doesn't matter how your body functions. It's about doing the best you can with what you have where you are. And for me, deciding what excellence really means is at the end of the day, I know I did the best that I could with what I had. And mm-hmm. only you can answer that. And Um, You know, for me now, I see so many people um, with so many varying levels of abilities, but I can still see excellence in each of those athletes because I know that they're doing the best that they can. Mm -hmm. I love that. Do the best with what you have where you are. Um, That's a fantastic Mm -hmm. quote. Uh, Another thing I wanted to ask you about is – how you learn so quickly, you know, coming off the 2008 win, um, the gold medal in wheelchair basketball. Um, I've heard that you, you know, approached a coach and said you wanted to compete in the Vancouver games two years later in skiing. And he was a little bit skeptical. Like, are you kidding? Like that's two years from now. How are you going to get to that level? But you did. And I'm curious, do you have any insight into what is it about you um, that allows you to learn so quickly and, and be able to, get all these skills to compete at the highest levels of these sports over such a short period of time. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I think one thing that set me apart, you know, I'm, I'm blessed with some God given talent, but one thing that really set me apart and allowed me to learn as fast as I could was being open-minded. I, Hmm. I did have a medal going into the, Alpine ski racing experience. And I could have easily sort of rested on my laurels knowing I was an elite level athlete and a gold medalist, but I humbled myself. I started at the bottom of the mountain and I was open to 
everyone's instruction, whether it was from a rookie that was developing underneath me or a coach that had more experience than anyone else. I, I received that information with an open mind. And I think that really allowed me to take what I wanted and leave the rest. And, you know, the other thing was, I I really just agree with this concept because it's helped me a lot is I was never comparing myself to anyone. Um, You know, being a task oriented athlete and someone that focuses on being better than their, their self, their best self yesterday, being better than who they were last week. That's really what allowed me to ski my fastest race and then not really know who was going to be on the podium next to me. And, you know, being ego oriented and comparing myself to even the best Alpine ski racer at the time wasn't going to serve me. So, you know, I really encourage athletes to, to focus on bettering their best. That's so awesome. Um, where did you get that, you know, um, the sort of the whole task versus ego orientation knowledge? And was that something that your grandparents raised you with or you studied it as an undergraduate? Or how did you get that insight? You know, I actually, I, I studied that in my graduate work at the University of Alabama. Um, I got mm-hmm. my master's in and uh, learned a lot about task-oriented and ego-oriented athletes. And you know, overall, it takes a mix of them, and and some people work better under either philosophy. But more often than not, task oriented athletes are more fulfilled and actually more successful. Um, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the competition, those are the athletes that that feel like they're proud of their performance, regardless of the result. That's awesome. I love that. I wanted to ask you specifically about um, how you bounce back from mistakes during competition. And I know, you know, in certain sports like skiing, you know, a mistake your end, your run is over. Um, whereas in other sports like basketball, it's a flowing sport; it keeps going. But do you have strategies that you could share with our listeners um, about maybe techniques you've used to bounce back from mistakes um, in in all the, you know, whether it's basketball or kayaking or ski racing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think strategically, I developed the skill of recovering quickly. So resiliency is being able to make a quick recovery um, from the mistake. I think acknowledging the fact that regardless of what competition you're in, you will make a mistake. So not letting that set you back or shock you that the mistake was made, but rather accepting it and moving on as fast as possible. Um, yep. And also I would say it's really important for me to visualize myself being successful. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of Alpine skiers use visualization as a tool in preparation for a competition. And so for me, being able to visualize myself successfully completing a task or a free throw or an entire ski race, I would even make mistakes in my head. And that was where I had to shake it off quickly and get back to a place where I was visualizing myself being successful. 
I've never heard anyone say that. So say a little bit more, you would make mistakes in your head. So during your visualization, you'd see yourself making a mistake? Yeah, like, um, you know, a downhill ski race has about 30 to 33 gates in it. And mm-hmm. what we do, we we actually slide down the course. It's called an inspection. We look at each of those gates. And then it's up to us. We only get one slide through. It's up to us to memorize the course and visualize ourselves being successful. And then when it comes yep. to actually skiing, you have to rely on your, your memory and your visualization. And so yeah. there were often times when I'd be at the top of a course and say it was like the seventh or eighth turn. And I just, I saw myself making a mistake. I slid out. I wasn't holding yeah. proper position on the gate. I would have to start the whole race over from the start down to that seventh gate and visualize myself going around that successfully. And, you know, it's about realizing that there can be a mistake, but not allowing your brain to go there. So shake it off even in visualization and then go, go on through the course successfully. I love that. Um, one of the big things we talk about at Positive Coaching Alliance is helping student athletes transfer, um, you know, uh, techniques that they use in sports and life lessons they learn in sports to other parts of their lives. And I'm curious, you know, hearing you talk about this visualization sort of inspection and then visualization, um, is is that a skill that you feel like you've used in other domains in your life, maybe outside of sport, or are there any other specific life lessons you feel like you've learned from sports that you've applied in, in areas outside of sport? Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I'm actually a public speaker now and Um, it's not unlike competition or performance in that it's very nerve wracking. It's something that I get the same adrenaline rush from, but for me, you know, before I'm about to go speak in front of thousands of people, I visualize myself being successful performing that task. And that's just something I'm so thankful to have now. Um, And, you know, one other thing that, I used as an athlete was the power of positive thinking. Um, I really spent, yeah, I really spent my time as far as the visualization went and as far as the positive self-talk goes, I was always feeding myself positive feedback and affirmations about how the game was going to go, how the race was going to go, how the talk is going to go. And, you know, there's so much to be said about, really believing what you say. Um, And it's very much like performing a task or lifting a weight. You have to flex your, your attitude and the possibility of being great, you know? And so I use that in sport, but now in life, um, you know, whether it's a job interview or uh, a speaking engagement, um, talking and meeting new people, you know, whatever it is that stretches you outside of your comfort zone, I think it's really important to reaffirm that you've done the training, that you're a great athlete, that you're prepared, um, and that you're ready to be great, you know, and that that's that's really what will allow it to happen. I love that. Um, You know, the whole idea of positive self-talk, you know, we all have that little voice in our head that it's talking to us whether we're competing or about to, you know, do a public speaking engagement. 
And I've heard people say, like, when you don't like other people being negative and talking to you like that, why would you ever speak to yourself in a way negatively in your head that you would never speak that way to a teammate? Like, treat yourself at least as well as you would treat a teammate. And I love this idea of having high expectations and believing in yourself. Um, it's it's phenomenal. So I wanted to ask you for a second um, about how to bounce back specifically from injury. I think it was when you were doing your downhill skiing where you broke both of your ankles on a fall. Um, and so many athletes and their families are dealing with, with having to rehab and come back from an injury. And do you have any tips from folks about how to successfully approach that and the rehabilitation piece? Yeah, I actually... Um the crash that you're referring to was, uh, it happened up at Mount Hood, Oregon, which is a place that you can ski race and train year round here in the United States. So it was in June of 2013, about, um, let's see, six months before the Sochi Paralympic games in March. And, um, I was skiing, minding my own ski racer business. And all of a sudden I caught an edge I actually skied directly into a boulder. I hit both of my feet first, and then I actually caught my right shoulder as I went by and dislocated it posteriorly. Um, Yeah, meaning it went out the back way, which is very rare and Mm -hmm. takes an extreme amount of force to happen. But um, yeah, it was out of place for two hours. I tore everything in my shoulder. and had to have a full shoulder reconstruction surgery not long after. So as you can imagine, I'm already paralyzed and in a wheelchair, and now I'm down to one working limb. Um, Thankfully, I was given the opportunity to do my rehab at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. So I was uh, put into a very unique position to do rehabilitation six days a week, um, yeah. which I yeah. needed to do in order to get back on snow by November and to the games in March, um, which was a stretch. But, you know, some of my advice um, to athletes and their parents or their, their support system is um, carefully manage the pain. Um, it's really easy to rely on pain meds to get you through and, it's very easily to become addicted to those pain meds. Um, yeah. A lot of athletes experience this, and it's not anything anybody actually wants to have happen, um, but it happens. So yeah. um, being very diligent and mindful of how that is being um, regulated is important, but also um, with regard to rehab, uh it's really hard. It's really, really hard. And I think one thing for me was just to have a goal, um, whether it was small or larger to be working towards. So I started lifting a one pound weight after my Uh injury on my shoulder. And, you know, I very clearly knew that I wanted to move to a three pound weight two weeks later. And so I worry about the big picture. I didn't have this overarching goal of three months later. I, I had that two week plan in place. And so for me, it was about accomplishing those smaller goals 
before I, you know, before I tried to manage getting to the Paralympics, you know, which was yeah. the ultimate goal. So That's setting the small point. goals. Yeah. yeah, it'll keep you motivated. Yeah, I love that, having smaller goals that you're reaching and not just striving for, like, the thing that's so far in the future, but being able to see your progress. And such a good point, too, about the pain meds and, and being careful there because there is um, such a risk. So so during our interview, I think I may be hearing your, your cell phone beeping occasionally, and I know that you're big into social media and I know this is something that I didn't have to grow up with um, as a kid of trying to think about how to use social media responsibly and positively. And this is a big issue today for coaches and parents and their kids. And I'm curious if you have a few tips um, for athletes today and, you know, and their support system about how to effectively and responsibly use social media. Absolutely. Yes. Well, sorry about those dings. I'm on my computer and I, I actually don't know how to turn that off. So. Um, <laughs> no problem. So I might not be as tech savvy, but I'm certainly social media savvy. And, you know, a lot of what we learn about at a Paralympic and Olympic level is how to represent your own brand. And mm-hmm. as, as an athlete, whether you're on an Olympic level, on a high school level, everybody's got their own brand. And if you can imagine how people receive what they're seeing, how important it is to represent yourself in a positive light, in a way that people will see you as a strong ambassador for sport and um, athletics. It's, it's really important to take that into consideration before you post. And, you know, really, there's a lot of ways to go about social media where I think it's important to remain authentic. People really want to see the real you, but it's also really important to consider how much of the real you people need to see. And mm-hmm. um, as athletes, I, I always, I always think about my grandma. So my grandma is my hero, and you know the woman that raised me and gave me all the opportunities in the world. She is my guiding light on social media. I post for her because she's so interested in what I'm doing. Um, and she's also my my guideline. What what would my grandma really want to know about my experience right now? And mm-hmm. for kids that are in high school, maybe they can think about one of their heroes or people that they want to emulate and think about actually posting to them. I love that. I love that rule of thumb. And it's so awesome that you still have your grandma with you um, and that you think about what would my grandma want to know. Um, That's a great rule of thumb. So we're coming to the end of our time, but I just had a few more quick questions I wanted to ask you. Um, One of those is I know you serve on a couple different boards um, now and in the past, like the, the board for ESPNW and the Women's Sports Foundation and that you're a huge advocate of, um, you know, girls and women having sporting opportunities. And I'm curious if you could say a little bit more about that and why that's so important to you. Absolutely. Well, in lieu of International Women's Day, that's a great question. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's a, it's a really great time to be a woman and a female athlete. And we are making great gains in um, – in the way of equality and inclusion in sport. And, 
you know, for me, I had, I had some, some hard curveballs thrown my way as a child, you know, with my father dying and my mom not being equipped to raise us. And it was sports yeah. that really gave me that, the sense of confidence, the hope that I needed, the focus that, you know, I, I needed that structure really to continue to be great in school and great as an athlete and yeah. invest in my future. And I know that there are a lot of young women and girls that um, maybe come from underprivileged backgrounds or minority groups that they need that structure. They need that outlet for them to gain the confidence they need to then transfer those skills um, into the workforce and into their education and become the best versions of themselves. And I really believe that sports have the, the ability to, to build that in each of us. That's awesome. Um, so for my, my final question, it won't surprise you coming from Positive Coaching Alliance, is I'm curious if there's is a one or two um, coaches out there that you really feel like had a massive impact on your life. And what was it about this person? Like what were his or her characteristics that really had that positive impact on you? And I know I've seen you've done a little bit of coaching now yourself. And are you sort of taking some of those lessons you learned from that coach um, into your own coaching today? And who is that person and, and what can you share about that um, amazing coach? Yeah. So for me, uh, I didn't have a traditional family growing up. So coaches actually filled a void in my life where my father would have been. And um, they absolutely changed my life. Um, one of the most impactful coaches in my early life was a man named Carl Eford, and he coached me from T-ball until uh, the end of my junior high um, softball yep. career. And um, part of what really influenced me from Carl was his work ethic. He he held us to an extremely high standard, and he did that in a way that made us want to work hard because he was actually living that. And mm-hmm you know, the integrity that he had going into being a coach, he didn't expect us to do anything that he wasn't doing himself. And so that really, I I think that really built a great foundation for me in terms of hard work um, and diligence. He he expected us to finish every job that we started. Um, Mm -hmm. And then one of my favorite coaches uh, in alpine skiing is Eric Peterson. He's the head coach at the um, National Sports Center for the Disabled. And part of his coaching technique was um, it was it was positive in nature. He had a, a general uh, vibe about him that was just a very exciting, positive person to be around. Um, uh-huh. and, but he was also ready and willing to go with me to those places when I wasn't performing at my best. And one of the things he always told me was that he never learned anything from winning all the time and how uh-huh. important it, yeah, how important it was for him to learn from his losses and, and the same for me. And so 
that allowed me to go into every competition knowing that regardless of the result, I was going to learn and I was growing and I was moving towards my higher self as an athlete. Well, Lena, um, I have to say, I just think you're a tremendous inspiration and a role model um, for the rest of us. This morning, um, over breakfast, my boys and I watched an amazing 60 Minutes um, video about you, and I wanted them to know about you and know your story. And I just, I appreciate so much you taking this time with me today um, for the PCA one-on-one podcast. And in closing, I wanted to tell you that when I asked my boys, hey, I'm going to get to interview her today. Isn't this amazing? What questions do you guys want me to ask her? Um, They thought about it and they said, we want to know exactly how many medals she's won, how many golds, how many silvers, how many bronzes. And I just thought that was so awesome because in their eyes, you know, you're an Olympic athlete and what they care about were your medals. And um, they're viewing you like every other athlete. And and I just, I thought that was really beautiful. And I want to let our audience know that they can follow you on Twitter, um, Elena Nichols 21. And I I love your website, ElenaNichols.com, where there's some great videos. And um, if people do want to bring you in, um, you're obviously a tremendous public speaker. And uh, I just, I look forward to watching the arc of your career and want to thank you so much for this supportive Positive Coaching Alliance today. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you, Tina. And really thank you for investing in my story and sharing it with your family. That means a lot. And, uh, and also thank you so much for having me, um, at positive coaching Alliance. I'm really excited to be a part of this movement and, um, continue to spread the, the love that sports has and, um, and work with all of you great people. So I appreciate you having me today. You bet. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.